This week's reading is taken from Acts 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God, who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He came, became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them. I have sent them. Now skipping to verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising an objection. May I ask why you sent for me? 
Cornelius answered, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remember your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how we went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished at the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptised in water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a very warm welcome to our online service this morning. We're going to take a closer look at Acts chapter 10, and it would be a great help if you could keep that open. And on the service sheet, there's an outline for where we're going to go in the next few moments. Uh, as we begin, though, let me say a prayer. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that the Lord Jesus has promised to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. And we pray as we reflect now on this chapter that you would give us great confidence in his ability to do that work with all people everywhere. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
I wonder if you've ever come across the concept of limiting beliefs. It's a concept that pops up in the psychology or business world. And the idea is that we don't achieve what we can, not because of some actual barrier that's there, but because of what we tell ourselves. And so lots of us find ourselves not fulfilling our potential, not because uh, there was ever a threat to that potential, but because we have limiting beliefs about what we might achieve. Now, just before you worry that I'm just going to break out into a motivational speech this morning, I'm not. Uh, The reason I raise that is because I believe that this chapter tackles our limiting beliefs. Not limiting beliefs about our self-esteem or our career prospects, but limiting beliefs about the gospel and who it's for. It's so easy, isn't it, to, to have limiting beliefs when we think about who can become a Christian or not. Of course, we believe that people can become Christians, and uh, we kind of imagine the types who will. It's often the churchy types or the people whose lifestyle is not a million miles away from what you might expect from a Christian. But then, of course, we go into work Monday morning, and we meet our colleague who's read the Richard Dawkins's God delusion and knows all the answers, and we think, well, it's not for them. Or we walk past a house on our street and we know the gay couple who live there and we know that their perception of the church is quite often it's bigoted and we think not them. Or we drive through one of the estates in our town and we notice how different the houses look to the houses we're used to and we think not here. And we limit our beliefs, don't we? We think how can the gospel possibly connect with them? But Luke, our author this morning, wants to tackle yours and my limiting beliefs head on. See, on the surface, this chapter is about Cornelius and his conversion. That's um, where it begins, and you'll see it ends with his conversion and his family's conversion at the end. But as I've looked at this more these past few weeks, I've noticed that actually it's less about the conversion of Cornelius, more about the conversion of Peter a conversion of his perception of who the gospel's for. And actually, we see that Peter, uh, is at, uh, Peter's attitudes need to change, but also yours and my attitudes need to change. And c- because Luke uses this chapter to sweep away our limiting beliefs. Now, how does Luke do that this morning? Well, there is one issue that shapes this whole chapter that we need to get our heads around Uh, to understand it. And it's this. It's Cornelius's background. See, look at what Luke says about Cornelius's background in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. Now, Cornelius is what you call a Gentile, which means he's not Jewish. Uh, He lives in Caesarea. It's a Roman town uh, named after Caesar. Uh, He's a a centurion, that means he's an officer in the Roman army, and his name is Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a famous general, lived about 100 years before, and uh, a famous celebrity, and lots of people named their children after him, uh, a bit like we might name our children uh, Kardashian or something today, and uh, his name is clearly a, a Roman Gentile name. Now, why does that background matter? Well, because Cornelius is the first Gentile to be converted in Acts. 
So you have a look at chapter 11, verse 18. I know this is next week's passage, but here's the kind of punch of the whole section, verse 18 of chapter 11. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. And so Cornelius is a bit like the first piece of fruit you see on a tree. He's the first Gentile, which kind of bursts open the dam as the gospel in Acts goes out from Judea to Samaria, and now we're going to see it goes out to the ends of the earth. Now, why is this threshold, this issue of Cornelius, so significant? Well, just have a look at how Peter speaks to Cornelius when he meets him. Have a look at verse 28 of chapter 10. This is what Peter says as he walks into Cornelius' house. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. Now, there probably is a list somewhere of etiquette uh, when you walk into someone's house, what you're meant to say to them. I guess lots of us now say, where's the hand sanitizer? Uh, But Peter gets it all wrong, doesn't he? Because he says it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. I mean, how's that for a how do you do? But Peter there is expressing a division between Jew and Gentile that has run for centuries. See, God told the Jewish people to be distinct, that the Jewish people were not meant to follow the way the world goes. They were meant to have God as their king. They were meant to be a light for the nations. But over the centuries, that distinction from the world became separation, and that separation became prejudice. Now, there's a a verse here, it's going to appear on your screens, from the Book of Jubilees, which is um, what you call the Apocrypha. Uh, It's not in our Bibles, but it's a bit of Jewish literature. And here's what it says, keep yourself separate from the nations, that means Gentiles, and do not eat with them and do not imitate their rituals, nor associate with them. And actually, if you look at the first century literature, there's all sorts of kind of horror stories about Gentiles and just how foreign they are and just how creepy their houses are. Um, I guess we have a similar kind of idea, don't we? We teach children not to visit houses in the middle of woods, and especially if that house is lived in by an old lady, and uh, especially if that house is made of gingerbread. I mean, just don't go there, is what we tell children. And there are all sorts of stories like that going around in the first century about Gentiles. They were seen as impure and unclean. Uh, you, you may remember the Canaanite woman, is, uh, she terms herself a dog, because that was the kind of perception that was out there. And so it's not a surprise, is it, that God now needs to act to shape Peter's perceptions to get rid of those limiting beliefs and show him why his prejudice is no longer appropriate. Now, that first point, God, uh, the gospel is wider than you think. God does not show favoritism. Now, how does God shift Peter's prejudice? Well, he brings about a miraculous meeting. In the first part, he sends an angel to Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius is told to send uh, some of his men to go and uh, meet Peter and to bring Peter back. And the very next day, Peter receives a vision. It's around lunchtime, he's getting hungry, and he goes onto the roof while uh, his soup is uh, on the stove, and he begins to pray, and as he does, he sees a vision. 
and a huge sheet is let down across the world, you may say a tablecloth. And on that tablecloth or sheet uh, is all, there are all sorts of animals, both clean and unclean. And Peter hears God say the unthinkable. Look at verse 13 of chapter 10. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter expresses what you would expect a Jewish person to, to express. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. But the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And just in case Peter was any in doubt, verse 16, this happened three times. Now, what does this all mean? I mean, why are we given this vision about a tablecloth and some food? And to be honest, if we're confused, well, that's okay, because Peter was pretty confused as well. But we need to understand what food represented. See, food was a marker of the division between Jews and Gentiles. See, the Jewish nation were not to eat certain foods, not just because of some arbitrary rule, but because they were to make distinctions in their diet, which reminded them of their distinctions from the world. See, every time a Jewish person popped to Sainsbury's and walked past the um, sausage and bacon aisle and was tempted to to dig in, they would remind themselves, no, we're distinctive. We eat differently. We are differently. We are different, rather, to the world around us. But look at what God is saying now in verse 15. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. See, in other words, that distinction between Jew and Gentile is now not there. Now, why is that? You may think to yourself, has God changed his mind? Well, he's not changed his mind. Rather, that picture is no longer needed. See, Israel was to be separate for a purpose. As I said, it was meant to be a light to the nations around it. But as we read the Old Testament, we realize that Israel had failed in that job. They were not a light. They were just like everyone around them. But the thing is, Jesus comes and Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Uh, Right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, uh, uh, Simeon, who's in the temple waiting for the coming of the Messiah, says this about Jesus. He is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And so God is saying that now Jesus is here. Those old distinctions don't matter. Everyone needs to come to Jesus the same way, whether Jewish, whether Gentile. Now the big point, if that is all confusing, is there in verse 34. Here's where Peter gets to at the end. Then Peter began to speak, verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men and women from every nation who fear him and do what is right. See, here's the penny dropping, Peter. God doesn't show favoritism. Now, it's hard, isn't it, to, to appreciate why it took Peter so long to kind of grasp this. And if we know our Bibles, we know that Peter even has another wobble after this. But actually, this prejudice was deep-seated. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think prejudice is something that actually we all struggle with. Uh, to, To be prejudiced means to prejudge people based on the group they're from. Now, I know that's hard to hear, isn't it? Because in the 21st century, we think we're all very enlightened and that we don't judge anyone by their background, and we're tolerant of everyone. 
But I remember being struck very, um, very vividly uh, when I moved to London from North Kent. See, when I lived in North Kent, um, it was a predominantly white working class area, and people, um, uh, not everyone, but there was a few people who were pretty, pretty racist uh, to some of the minority groups that were in that area. And that was completely indefensible, especially uh, in a light of a passage like this, uh, to pre be prejudiced uh, towards a group like that. But the thing is, then I moved to London, which was a very different area, a very multicultural area, and a, a very ethnically diverse place, and you didn't uh, come across that explicit racism as I did before. But then I'd be chatting to kind of progressive types of people at work, and they would be talking about the people from whom I've just come from. And they would talk about them as kind of stupid, as racist, and pretty backward. And I thought to myself, okay, it's different, but how is that not prejudice? How is that not prejudging a group based on some cultural assumptions we make about them? See, if we're honest with ourselves, like Peter, we all have prejudices. We all believe that one group is better than another. But the thing is, the gospel flattens those distinctions. Because the gospel says to every group, you all need Jesus. You all need your sins forgiven and your relationship with God repaired. And so Luke is showing us here that it is not right to put a distinction in place. None of us need to jump through a hoop to come to Jesus. We don't need to belong to some class, some race, some IQ score, some sex, some political party. God shows no favoritism. But God welcomes Cornelius, a Gentile, to show us that actually there is no barriers now for all to come to know Jesus. See, it goes without saying, isn't it, that we, we mustn't give the impression that the gospel is more narrow uh, than it is. I remember years ago I was speaking to a guy and he said to me the reason he didn't become a Christian is because he thought that Christianity was for the intellectual types. And I remember as he explained to me how he didn't feel very clever and so he didn't think Christianity w was for him, how, how horrible it was to hear because I realized that um, this was a previous church, we'd given the impression that it was for intelligent people. Or a, a guy I met at university who was gay, and I remember him writing off the Christians because he assumed that Christianity wasn't for him. But Luke is showing us here very clearly that there is no favoritism when it comes to God. All of us need the gospel, whatever our background, whatever our group. And the church, you've got to admit, is at its best, isn't it? when it begins to show that. I remember the first time I went to church as an adult. I was pretty nervous. I didn't know what to expect. And a friend accompanied, accompanied me there. And I remember, I still remember it very vividly to this day, crossing over the road and seeing lots of people come into the church. Now, that was my first surprise, that people were actually going there. But then I noticed who, um, or what those people looked like. Because there were people from different races. Uh, people from different ages. Uh, people clearly from different backgrounds. And I remember the thing that blew me away most was a guy parked his motorbike, uh, got off the motorbike in full levers, took off his helmet and walked into the church. And I thought, what's that? The church is for motorcyclists as well. And I remember it made a, a significant impression on me, even before I was a Christian, because I thought, wow, what other group is like that? Where people, no matter their background, can come to know Jesus Christ. I've asked myself off the back of this passage... Do I self-select 
who I share my faith with. Now, I doubt many of us divide people according to their race, but it is worth saying that if we do, there really is no room for that in the church. But other barriers are much more subtle, aren't they? See, I wonder sometimes in British uh, churches whether class is actually a more difficult barrier than race. See, we begin to believe that Christianity is more for Waitrose than Asda or more Telegraph than Sun. And I ask myself, do I find myself mixing with only certain groups? Or do I find myself only mixing with Christians? Now, it's not a bad thing to mix with Christians. We need to encourage one another. We are family. But sometimes we can do that because we don't believe that the gospel is for the people around us. See, Luke shows us God does not show favoritism. There is no special class, special race, special background, but God favors over another. All of us are invited to receive the gospel. Now, while the gospel is wider than we think, I think also it is narrower than we think as well. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if I'm honest with myself, I've always found this chapter quite awkward uh, because I wish that Cornelius was a bit of a baddie. Uh, because that would be a more helpful point. If I was to try to make the point this morning, which I have, that Jesus is for everyone, it would be very helpful to have Cornelius as a baddie here. Because we could say, look at Cornelius, he was a Gentile, and he was a baddie, and he's welcome. So everyone's welcome to Jesus. But actually, the chapter doesn't read like that, does it? See, look at how Cornelius is described, verse 2 of chapter 10. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Or look at verse 22. The men rep- uh, over the page, we, the men replied, we have come from Cornelius Centurion. He is a righteous man and a God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. So it's clear that Cornelius, even though he's not a Gentile, even though he's not Jewish, he is very religious. Now, why is that awkward? Well, it could almost suggest that Cornelius is being saved because of his religiousness. In fact, as some people have read verse 35 and taken it that way. Look at verse 35 again. Uh, Peter says, God accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And so people argue, well, uh, the issue isn't whether you come to Jesus or not. The issue is that you have some sense of fearing God and do what is right. But people who argue that haven't asked the next question, which is what does it mean to do what is right? Because immediately after this, I think Peter goes on to show us. See, look at verse 36. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. That's the message. It's a message of peace through Jesus Christ. And verse 43, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so Peter isn't kind of promoting universalism here. In fact, he's promoting the opposite. He's saying it is only through Jesus, Cornelius, and it is only through this message. Now, actually, as I've looked at this, I've realized that it's not awkward at all. Actually, this is very helpful because it's showing us that the gospel is even needed by religious-looking people. I've already mentioned the danger in my first point about the fact that we can make the gospel narrow when it's actually wide, but we can make the gospel wide when it's narrow. What do I mean by that? 
Well, it's hard, isn't it, sometimes, to hold on to the fact that people around us need Jesus and Jesus alone. I think back to when I worked in finance, and you might think to yourself, well, anyone who works in finance needs Jesus, that's pretty clear. Uh, But um, to be honest, there was only a few bad eggs. Um, There were some people that you wanted to avoid. But actually, the vast majority of my colleagues were pretty decent. I think of one supervisor of mine. He was a good guy. He worked hard. He looked after his family, and he looked after me. And I remember uh, going to church on a Sunday and coming in on a Monday and just feeling that sense of, does he really need to hear this? Look at his life. He's pretty okay. But notice the extent God goes to get a religious man like Cornelius to hear the gospel. An angel sent to Cornelius who sends messengers to Peter. Peter receives a vision three times, who then goes with the, the messengers uh, from Cornelius. And Peter takes a huge trek to Caesarea uh, to uh, meet Cornelius. See, if you think that Cornelius could have kind of slipped in any other way, there would have been the, every opportunity for that to take place, wouldn't it? It would have been so easy to say, look, Cornelius, he's a good guy. He's pretty decent. I mean, he's praying continually. He's looking after the Jewish nation. Uh, he's well-respected. He's in, surely. But the only time he's in is what we read in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on those who heard the message. That is the point where he becomes a Christian. And it may just be that there are some Corneliuses listening this morning. Maybe you are a decent person. You're not a drug dealer. You're not in prison. And you are upstanding. But perhaps you care about people. Perhaps you even have that notion that God is there somehow. And we don't have to say that those things don't count. Notice that Luke's very respectful, isn't he, of Cornelius' religious background. But he does show us that even he needed to walk through the same door as everyone else. He needed Jesus. He needed his sins forgiven. And it's very easy even to be in church for many years, even to do some of the Christian things, and to never have had that encounter with Jesus for ourselves. And it is easy, isn't it, for us Christians to forget how essential this message is, even for um, uh, the religious-looking types. I mean, it would have been so easy for the angel to tell Cornelius about the gospel. I I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that the angel doesn't do the work of converting I mean, um, we're told that Cornelius, this army officer, is terrified. I mean, if I saw an angel, I would have been quite happy to believe whatever he told me. I would have been quite so terrified. But actually, the angel is not enough, is it? Actually, the gospel is only explained by Peter, and God works everything to bring Cornelius to hear that message. And so if it is this word and this word alone that brings people to encounter God, well, then there is a real urgency, isn't there, in making sure we're bringing that message out to the ends of the earth. As we said, it is easy to make the gospel narrow when it's wide, but it's easy to believe that the gospel's wide when it's narrow. And thank God it is, because imagine if the gospel did depend on our background, our IQ score, our race, our class, well, then none of us would stand. Or imagine if it was 
through the religious types, the do-gooders, the morally upstanding. Well, all of us would have our down days. All of us would fail. But the truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ accepts us, not because of our background, not because of who we are, but because of what he has done. As Jesus holds out his arms on the cross, he does so to welcome in people from all over the world who come to him, who bow the knee and receive forgiveness of sins. We said at the beginning about limiting beliefs, those ideas that we tell ourselves that stops us progressing as we might. And Luke here very clearly in this chapter sweeps out two of those limiting beliefs where we believe that the gospel really isn't for all people, and so we show favoritism, and where the gospel isn't necessary for all people, so we hold off speaking about it. And I guess the big question off the back of this is to ask ourselves, are we in danger of those limiting beliefs? Because there really is now no barrier to the gospel going to all people. See, here God takes down the final hurdle for the news of Jesus Christ to go out to the ends of the earth. And so we as a church can be absolutely confident in the fact that all people everywhere need to hear this message and people from every group, every background, every race, every class will come like Cornelius first did to encounter the Lord Jesus for themselves. Let's pray as we finish. I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts men and women from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Our Father, we thank you that you do not accept us on the basis of our background because, Father, we know that none of us would be able to be in your presence. But we rejoice and praise you that you select people from all nations all over the world to encounter the Lord Jesus for themselves. And so far we pray for us as a church and a people that we would show that same confidence as we bring this gospel to those around us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.